So, Jay, I always thought it was really interesting that Age of Apocalypse Magneto chose to headquarter his X-Men on frickin' Windigore Mountain. It makes sense, though, Miles. It's remote, safe, populated by friendly human-animal hybrids who've already helped raise two of Magneto's kids. What are those guys' deals, anyway? Well, Wanda can manipulate probability, and Pietro's real fast. Uh, no, no, not the Maximoffs. The animal people on Wondagore. I know the High Evolutionary created them, but why? For fun? For company? To round out his D&D party? I would not discount any of those possibilities, given the High Evolutionary, but he was also definitely training them to repel a potential attack by locally imprisoned demon Khthan. Yeah, sort of like a new set of Knights of the Round Table. Really? I never thought of mysticism as the High Evolutionary's style. Oh, Magnus told him to do it. Wait, Magneto wanted to fight a demon with a bunch of animal people? No, not that Magnus. This Magnus was a 6th century wizard possessing Spider-Woman's father. WHAT?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 288 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to the Age of Apocalypse, where we'll be spending the rest of our lives. I just realized something, though, speaking of Age of Apocalypse in our coverage. We're going to be in Age of Apocalypse when we get to episode 295. Right, Earth 295, episode 295, that's kind of perfect. It is. I feel like it should be the center of some kind of summoning ritual, but honestly, I'm not sure I really want to summon anything that that could bring up. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you have some great hair and some sweet facial tattoos in the Age of Apocalypse, but also, like, a whole lot of genocide. Quicksilver's weirdly okay. He kind of is, yeah, for a change. So... Speaking of the Age of Apocalypse, this is our second episode immersed in Earth-295. For those of you who are tuning in and either haven't listened to the previous episode or have very short, short-term memories, this happened in the mid-1990s and Marvel said, well, we are going to destroy the universe, we're relaunching all of our books, everything takes place now in this universe where Professor X died before he could start the X-Men, and so everything has gone all to hell. And it's where we are spending the next fairly long period of the podcast, because frankly, there's a lot of it. There is, and honestly, I feel great about that. This has always been one of my favorite X-Men events, and I'm sure a lot of that is nostalgia. I, as I've mentioned before on the show, I was at the height of my X-Men fervor when Age of Apocalypse was happening, but I think a lot of it still holds up pretty damn well. You know, as the one of us who I think has established my role as both the heel of the team and as someone relatively untinted by nostalgia, I think it holds up. I think it holds up really well. Whether or not it's a comic that would come out now is an entirely different conversation, but given its context, this is really cool, and it's especially just phenomenally, phenomenally good in media rest world building. It is. And of course, last episode, we opened very much in Media Res with X-Men Alpha, which just threw us right into the present day of the Age of Apocalypse. We saw all these new X-Men working under Magneto. We saw various other teams. We saw the Summers Brothers working for Mr. Sinister and Apocalypse. And this episode, we're going to go back in time a bit, because as you mentioned, Jay, all of the X-Books were rebooted. They all had new number ones and new titles replacing them. And that included the quarterly standalone story comic, X-Men Unlimited. Now, in the Age of Apocalypse, X-Men Unlimited became a series called X-Men Chronicles. There were two issues over the course of the Age of Apocalypse, and both of those looked at some of the backstory that took place leading up to the events of Age of Apocalypse Alpha, which we covered last episode. Now, the X-Men Chronicles issues came out sort of as the whole event went on. We're going to cover them now. They take place chronologically before the rest of what we're going to be covering. But honestly, I kind of like having the background going into the rest of the story. Agreed. I mean, we are not looking at these as they would have been read in order as they were coming out. But that's part of the point and part of the fun of having a retrospective podcast. We get to have that 
overhead view. And in this case, we get to look at some of the backstory before we go into the story proper. So one of the things that I think is most interesting about the Chronicles issues isn't actually what they cover. It's what they leave out. I completely agree. Yeah, and I definitely want to talk a lot about that uh, over the course of the episode, because when you have literally decades of continuity that you're skipping past by going to the present day of an alternate universe, that means that you're making extremely conscious decisions as far as what backstory you show, what backstory you mention, and what backstory you just leave up to the imagination of the readers. We're also going to be introducing a new feature this episode where we look at a specific aspect of the Age of Apocalypse as a universe, as a publishing line, or as a construct. Today, that's going to be its relationship to backstory. Indeed. We'll see how that goes. I feel like by the end of Age of Apocalypse, we're just going to be talking about, I don't know, we're out of ideas. What do we think about the boots? Who has the best boots in Age of Apocalypse? Who does have the best boots in the Age of Apocalypse? I'm going to need to think about this because it's one of those things I normally have a lot of opinions about, but I think of this as an era that had really kind of singularly shapeless boots. It's true, yeah. I mean, it is the 90s, and as much as this is the high point of the 90s, the 90s were not known for having very good feet. I need to do some looking around and consider this question. All right. Boots of Apocalypse. We'll make it happen. In the meantime, though, let's talk about X-Men Chronicles number one, titled simply Origins. This is written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Terry Dodson, inked by Klaus Janssen, and colored by Matt Webb. And I gotta say, Janssen on inks and Dodson on pencils, it's a really good combination, and I think it's a combination that fits this issue super well. Those inks make the pencils a little flatter, as do Matt Webb's colors, and sort of more old-school comic booky in a way that tones down the airbrush qualities that I, we often see in Terry Dodson's art, and I dig it. Yeah, they give the line art just a touch of an Art Adams feel, I think. Yeah, and I mean, for a flashback issue that's going into a brighter time in the Age of Apocalypse's history, like before things were completely screwed and were just like kind of screwed. <laughs> so having that that more cheerful, more comic booky feel, like simpler colors and simpler lines and bright, bold figures. I dig that by contrast. Well, and it also gives us the contrast between these two issues because these are very much a pair of stories that go together and are set yeah, a number of years apart. And seeing how the look of the team and the look of the book evolves between them is a really, really good narrative bit. And this one is set, I'm not going to say at the very beginning, but basically it's set at the equivalent of 1963's X-Men number one. This is the first mission of the X-Men. And in fact, it's even going to be at the same location. It's going to be at the Cape Citadel missile base. And there are just parallel after parallel after parallel. And so what we find is that Professor Xavier has very much been replaced by Magneto. Magneto's doing the same thing. He's gathered a bunch of young mutants, he's training the hell out of them, and he's waiting for the world to go to hell and to need the X-Men. He's like Professor X, but with better hair. I mean, hair at all, but his hair's really good. We've talked a lot about how great the hair is in Age of Apocalypse, and Magneto is up there. Like, it's not elaborate, but it's just this incredibly long, flowing white hair with these braidy bits on the side. Uh, I mean, they're, they're braids. They have nothing to do with the haircuts of the Brady Bunch. Or maybe they do? I don't really remember the Brady Bunch. They're, they're not braids. They're, they're, lo they're elongated ponytails. But you got, you got to notice, though, that that hairstyle has to be earned. Magneto doesn't start out with that hair. He starts out with a more more sort of old-school Magneto haircut. And as he grows into his heroism, so too does his hair grow into its heroism. I mean, that was basically how it worked for me, so yeah, that makes sense. Like we mentioned in the cold open, Magneto's X-Men are initially based at Wondegore Mountain, the high evolutionary's base in the mainstream Marvel Universe. And this is a location that Magneto does have a connection to, because it's where his wife Magda fled after he, you know, killed a bunch of people to get revenge for their daughter being killed. This is where Magda went to have her next set of children, Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. Or, honestly, I don't even know where continuity is at this point with those two, but in the 90s, that was their deal. In Earth 295, we can say, I think, pretty firmly that Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch are Magneto's kids, and they were born on Wondergore Mountain. There we go. And I love the look of their base here. It is this, this valley, or I guess crater inside the mountain, that is just 
filled with these military bunkers. Like, it's Age of Apocalypse architecture. It's that very characteristic, kind of super futuristic, uh, curved lines and clean edges. But it's clearly more utilitarian, except for this beautiful giant golden X logo sculpture thing in the center. And that's Magneto. That's especially this Magneto. Utilitarian, militaristic, but with this touch of poetry, and I love it. Well, you know, you can take the supervillainy out of Magneto, but you cannot take the drama. Nothing, nothing can take the drama from Magneto. I would never want to. I hope nobody ever tries to. I would argue that even with his mind stripped out, he is still wildly dramatic over in 616. Oh, yeah. So Magneto students are training in, speaking of dramatic things, not the danger room, but... The Killing Zone. That's a very silly name. Do you think they got it from a movie? I think they probably did. I don't know. I mean, history basically stopped working right, and I'm guessing humanity stopped producing nearly as much art somewhere in the vicinity of the mid-70s. So, early 70s movie? Yeah, okay, I'll buy that. Everything in Earth 295 is directed by Uwe Ball. Oh, God, no. No, this is a dark timeline, but not, not that dark. So... This team, these these original X-Men of, of Earth-295, are different from the 616 ones in a number of ways. And I think the most obvious, the first one we're going to notice is their costumes. Their costumes are freaking rad. They're similar to the X-Men's original black and yellow training costumes, like the ones that the New Mutants would wear for a lot of their career. But while the yellow is the same... The black has been replaced by red, and that does a couple things. For one thing, it's more of a Magneto color, so there's that. I mean, the team is clearly influenced by his tactics, his philosophy, his increasingly awesome hair as the timeline goes on. But it also really brings up Generation X's costumes. And I love that 90s touch. I love that we're being reminded that this team that only got four issues before reality was rewritten is still very much the definitive young team of the mid-90s Marvel X-Men universe. The other thing it does is split the X-Men entirely from their Children of the Atom look. Now, we talked about this a lot way, way back when we were talking about the Silver Age, but the original X-Men costumes really evoke radiation warning signs, fallout zone warning signs, um, including in their colors, yellow and black. These X-Men, Magneto's X-Men, don't have that. They have red and yellow. They've got two primary colors, which roots them much, much more firmly in hero semiotics. Oh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about the primary color thing, but you're totally, you're totally right. Yeah. It also makes them seem very regal, which fits. They're working for Magneto, even if they're very much underdogs, very much, you know, criminals, very much, not so much feared, but certainly hated by Apocalypse's ruling class. Well, they're kids. These are... We, we've, we've got a team, but one of the things we see over the course of this issue is that there is a larger school here, and there are many, many more young mutants who, unfortunately, are never going to graduate to the X-Men. But speaking of the X-Men, who's our starting lineup? Who, who do we have as our original five or however many these are? So two of our Silver Age X-Men and Age of Apocalypse are the same as they were in 616. That's Jean Grey, who does not have a code name at all here. She is just straight up Jean Grey. She went straight to her 90s philosophy there. And Ice Space Man. It is Ice Space Man, or occasionally Ice Hyphen Man, but it's not one word. It's not Ice Man. I have no idea why. It's Ice Man with a space between Ice and Man. He's not Ice Space Man. Although that would be a terrible but entertaining name. And we've got a couple other recognizable X-Men, too. We've got Colossus, we've got Storm, and then we've got a couple less familiar, at least less familiar, X-characters. Those being Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. It makes perfect sense. They're Magneto's kids. But they, of course, were founding members of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants back in the Silver Age. And this works. We have an X-Men team that's part X-Men, part Brotherhood, because the two aren't exactly different concepts in Age of Apocalypse. I think it's also worth looking at Magneto's relationship to his kids in this world, because the parallel is obvious. You know, they were in the Brotherhood in 616. They're on his X-Men team now. The difference, the really big difference, is that in the Brotherhood, he has a terrible, terrible relationship with them. And here, it actually seems pretty good. Yeah, they're a super tight, super happy family. And 
this is just one of the continual reminders that we're getting hammered home again and again, which is that in a world where Magneto is living by Xavier's ideals, he's a much nicer guy. I'm not going to say better person because you could that, that's a very complex topic in terms of his different philosophies in the different worlds, but he's way easier to be around and he's very, very likable. Like that's something that's consistent through the entire AOA is he's a really likable character. He is also much more humane and compassionate. In the Silver Age, in Silver Age X-Men, you see Magneto who's very, very goal-oriented and who is has has the villain thing of being willing to sacrifice any of his compatriots. And here we've got a Magneto who we first see worrying that he's putting way too much pressure on Quicksilver. Right. I know. Well done, Eric Magnus Lenger, Max, Eisenhart, whoever you are these days. There are two other differences that really fascinate me, and those go back to the OG X-Men who are on the team. The first is Iceman. Yeah, he's all spiky and stuff, even in the Silver Age. In Earth-616, he was still in his snowman form, just barely scratching the surface of his powers. And here, he's basically where he ended up after Mikhail Rasputin tore him up and put him back together. He's not quite as advanced as after Emma Frost showed him what his powers could do, but still, he's way better at it. Well, and he will be. By the time we get to Chronicles 2, that is going to be the level he's using his powers at. Now, the other example is Jean Grey. And this one really fascinates me. And that's because, as you may recall in Silver Age X-Men, Jean's deal was that she couldn't control, or at least Xavier claimed she couldn't control her telepathy. So he shut it down completely. Well, if you go back to the original continuity, she didn't even have telepathy until he shared some of his with her. But yeah, that was later retconned away. Well, and that's been retconned consistently and thoroughly enough that I feel pretty, pretty good saying that that's just sort of the way it is. Now here, by, by that argument, by that backstory, without Professor Xavier to intervene, Jean shouldn't be where she is, or at least... Jean would have come here by, via a very different route, but she's here, she's fighting with the X-Men, and she's already learning to use her telepathy even without a telepath assisting her, which is a pretty brutal indictment of Professor X's approach to that whole situation. Yeah, that dude just had her, like, running a shoelace through a board with holes in it telekinetically. This is way more badass. I think part of it, though, honestly, is just the 60s were more sexist than the 90s what women could do or should do was just a different thing. I mean, I guess that's more out of continuity, but still. Well, and within continuity, Magneto is, I think, a teacher who is much more willing to push his students and to trust his students to use their powers. Professor X was very, very much about keeping control of the scenario when he was training his original team in particular. Magneto's not. Magneto fights alongside his X-Men, and it's important to him that he does. But... He also makes it clear that he understands what he's asking of them in terms of risking their lives, and he accords them equivalent trust and respect. That said, um, he definitely still has some Silver Age declamation. Observe, X-Men, as I magnetically raise the door at the far end of the room and introduce you to the newest and most dangerous member of our team. Now, this is Logan, whose codename in this universe is Weapon X, although I think that it should be Hostile Work Environment. Oh, jeez, yeah. He's awful. Like, he's so, so, so awful. I mean, the, the first thing he says to Jean is... Don't like your tone, frail. A pretty little thing like you can call me Logan. To the rest of ya, I'm Weapon X. Now... Logan starts off as this much of a jerk in 616, but he grows significantly from there, and Weapon X doesn't. Yeah, he's just an asshole throughout the entire Age of Apocalypse. Ugh, especially if you look at the sequels. Yikes. Yeah, well, yeah, he turns into the big bad at that point. But he's also, he his relationship to Gene, and this is one of those things that's so frustrating because there's so much that this universe does well in in really interesting ways it doesn't manage to write Jean beyond being primarily an accessory to and defined by whichever guy she's associated with. Yeah, yeah, I mean, her character design is super badass, but the way her character is portrayed is... Well, I don't know. I mean, we'll talk more about this in the Weapon X episode that we do, but yeah, it could be a lot better. Well, and it's such a shame, again, given the stuff I talked about earlier regarding her powers and what it means if she's had to learn to use them herself. 
Yeah, yeah. We get another newbie showing up, though, because Mystique uh, arrives, bringing Rogue to Magneto. Apparently, Apocalypse tried to take Rogue before, but when Polaris tried to kidnap Rogue, Rogue permanently absorbed Polaris's powers and escaped. And so that's why Rogue has flight and super strength in a world where Ms. Marvel, Carol Danvers, never seemingly even got her powers. And I really appreciate that Marvel editorial took care to make sure that Rogue was still iconically Rogue, but in a way that makes sense in this alternate universe. That is badass. Yeah, that's something that they've been pretty good about doing consistently across universes. This Rogue was also raised by Mystique and is effectively her daughter and has been brought to Magneto for the same reason the original Rogue was brought to Charles Xavier. She doesn't have control of her powers. It's doing horrible damage to her. And... Instead of Charles Xavier being a telepath who can work things out, Magneto is the dude who knows magnet stuff and so is in a position to mentor her that no one else really is. And he's really kind to her, and especially the Scarlet Witch is very kind to Rogue. Like, they immediately have this sort of sibling-like relationship as Wanda is showing Rogue around. I also got to give props to Terry Dodson for the way he draws Rogue. She looks like an appreciably different version of the character. This is clearly a rogue with a different sense of style and who doesn't have that terrible haircut from her first appearance in 616. But she looks young. She looks anxious. She looks troubled in a way that I think the character absolutely would at this point. Yeah, this is this is rogue before rogue grows into having big hair. Yeah, well, especially because, remember, this is rogue showing up in the Silver Age. When we see her at this point, she's far younger than when we first met her in the main universe. And that's going to create some sort of weird space around Rogue and Magneto's much later relationship. Honestly, at this point, given the given the alternate universe factor, and also just given the slipperiness of Marvel Ages, I'm just sort of shrugging and 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 running with it. Still, I feel like this wouldn't be Jane Miles explain the X Men if we didn't mention that Magneto was de-aged to a baby by mutant Alpha and re-aged to an adult, but a much younger adult than he was before by Eric the Red. And so this Magneto, if those things didn't happen, technically should be very, very old, and he isn't, and I don't know why, but whatever. What makes you think those things didn't happen in the Age of Apocalypse? I guess that's true. I mean, he does have a robot nanny, and he mainly had one of those after the whole turning into a baby thing. Clearly there are some weird parallels and there are some things that kind of land in the same order regardless of the universe, and this may be one of them. Turning into a baby. The Magneto story. Anyway, this is X-Men number one redone, so it's mission time. And the mission this time is announced by... Okay, Jay, it's Howard Mackey writing an X-related issue. Who, what villain do you think would announce the big evil plan? Oh, God damn it! This is why we can't have nice things. This is why we can't have nice things. Because, yeah, it's Kandra. It's Kandra, the external, who has a hobby of holding her New Orleans Guild action figures in each hand and having them fight. She's here. She's working for Apocalypse. And from Apocalypse's ship, you know, ship from X-Factor, she announces to New York City that the mutants are going to take over the world. She is officially Apocalypse's herald, by the way, and Apocalypse has a bunch of horsemen, and some of them have horsemen names, and some of them are just guys, and I really love that. So there's, like, Death, and War, and Sabretooth, and Gideon. And Kandra. There are five horsemen, and only two of them have horsemen names. I don't know, at least the name part is consistent with the rest of Age of Apocalypse, because the present-day horsemen, none of them have your traditional horsemen names. So Apocalypse just does things differently in 295. You know, he's a complicated guy. I guess. Kandra and company are starting their, their quest for world domination with a familiar setting. They are going to take over the Cape Citadel missile base. Yeah. And I love this because we have X-Men number one represented here with the Cape Citadel mission. We have giant size X-Men number one represented with Logan joining the team. Although that also parallels X-Men number one because he's in the role that Jean Grey was in in X-Men number one. And then we have Uncanny X-Men number 171 when Rogue joins the team also. And I really got to give it to Howard Mackey. Like, this is a double-sized issue, yes, but the sheer amount of backstory references that he crams in in a way that I think is very graceful is fucking impressive. Mackey is also doing a ter terrific job of something that we talked about in context of 
X-Men Alpha, which is implying a huge amount of extensive backstory without going into it. Yeah, yeah, it works really, really well. So... Before the X-Men get there, the assorted horsemen are mostly accomplish their mission. They do take over the base. But when Sabretooth finds out that they're planning to launch America's nuclear arsenal at, I don't know, it doesn't really say where, I assume a whole lot of places, he's not thrilled. And this is interesting because in 616, Sabretooth, especially Sabretooth of this era, like the 60s, 70s, whenever the hell this was supposed to be given this lighting timeline— he wouldn't have given a shit. Sabretooth didn't care about anything at all at this point in the 616. I was going to say, 616 Sabretooth would mostly have been disappointed that he didn't get to kill everyone himself. Exactly. But this is Earth 295, where we know Sabretooth is going to become one of the X-Men. He's going to become a very sympathetic character. And apparently those roots are even back at this point. Or maybe it just suited the plot. Either way. His fellow hench people are unimpressed, but before they can off Sabretooth, a new challenger appears. That's right, it's the X-Men. Having taken the flight as an opportunity for Weapon X to continually low-grade sexually harass Jean, they're here, and as is traditional for any given superhero book, they all pair off and fight the bad guys. There's Jean versus Kandra in a psionic battle, there's Storm versus Death in a flying-around battle, Colossus and Iceman take out war— and of course, Sabretooth and Weapon X, Victor and Logan, pair off. And they are just being so macho in their posturing at each other because of course they are. Like, it's just it's just dick swinging everywhere. I mean, metaphorically. It reminds me of nothing more than, first of all, the let us do what tough guys do moment in a more recent X comic. And second, the bit in the first community holiday episode when everyone pulls off their shirts and are turning cartwheels and Britta is just like, am I being punked? <laughs> yeah, I remember that. It kind of is. But honestly, for these two, like, of course it's this way. And seeing them paired off in the Silver Age of the Age of Apocalypse is interesting because here, Sabretooth is by far the more civilized seeming person. Like, yeah, he's bloodthirsty. Yeah, he's a jerk. But Logan is just, like, the chaotic neutral alignment incarnate. He does not give a shit. He just wants to cut everything up and be a jerk. Yeah, Logan is just a massive jerk. He's not a fun jerk. He's not an interesting jerk. He's just a jerk. And this fits because, like you were saying, Jay, in the Bronze Age, like, right after Giant Size X-Men number one, Logan was that way. He was deeply unpleasant. And I kind of appreciate that he is here, too. In their fight... Logan eventually does win. He severs Sabretooth's spine and leaves him for dead. And this is interesting because while we didn't cover it, the last issue of Wolverine before the crystallization wave in Age of Apocalypse, in that issue, it ended with Logan popping his claws right through Sabretooth's brain, seemingly killing him. So a little bit of parallelism here, which is pretty cool. But I gotta ask, Jay... In X-Men number one, it was all of the X-Men versus Magneto. It was the team versus a singular villain. Here, we have the team versus the henchmen of the villain. What do you think about that? Do you think it works better? Do you think it works worse? I think it sets up a different dynamic, which is what it's here to do. So we've still got a pretty good team, fights together pretty effectively. They're generally older and a bit more experienced than the original five were, but they're massively, massively outmatched. And we know especially that the only chance they have of winning this fight is if they can if it can be over before Apocalypse shows up, because they do not stand a chance against him. So you kind of have to have that. That that establishes not only Apocalypse as a really powerful enemy, but it also establishes that they aren't going to be able to take the threats that are coming at them one at a time. They're not going to be able to fight Magneto, shake hands with the general, go home and wait for the Vanisher to attack. Like, this is their lives. This is the world they live in. That's a really good point, yeah. I mean, we think of the X-Men as always having their backs against the wall, but back in the Silver Age, they kind of didn't. It was very much mission-based, and a lot of the time, they were on the same side as the status quo. And here, even from the start, it's not at all that. And so, yeah, they split up, they divide and attempt to conquer, and Magneto is the one that finds Gideon using his mad hacking skills to take over the missile computers. Fucking Gideon, man. Right. Gideon's kind of impressed that Magneto knows who he is. 
Guess I shouldn't be surprised what with you and Apocalypse dipping into the same gene pool for recruits. Simple twist of fate, we could have been allies. Which kind of sums up the structure of the Age of Apocalypse. But this kind of reminds me of, in the 616, Professor Xavier and the White Queen both going after the newly manifested mutants Kitty Pride and Dazzler right before the Dark Phoenix saga. Like, it's those rival schools trying to get the mutants to their philosophies, to their sides, but like with way the fuck higher stakes. I think it's exceptionally bold of Gideon to assume that anyone wants to ally with him. That's a really good point, yeah. And Magneto does, in fact, manage to kill Gideon, because while Gideon can absorb people's powers in Earth-295 instead of just amplifying them, Magneto knows the answer to that puzzle, which is you just funnel all of your powers into somebody, and then it's too much power, and then you look like a badass, and they die. Now, there's another really significant difference between this Cape Citadel fight and the one in X-Men number one. In X-Men number one... The fight was over, and it was over. In this one, this isn't the main fight. This is a distraction. Yeah, because while the X-Men were gone from Wundagore Mountain, from their base, Apocalypse's pretty boy, ponytailed son, Nemesis, showed up and just killed everyone. Like, tons and tons of children. And he fatally injured the Scarlet Witch. And while Rogue was able to defeat Nemesis and drive him off, like... The damage was done, because by the time the X-Men got back, Rogue was the only survivor. Wanda, using her Metal Gear Solid-style death speech, just told Rogue, Hey, my father's lonely, he walks a solitary path, what he's doing is so important, please be his friend. And then she died. And we only see the kids in a few panels, but I think that's a really significant detail that gets glossed over. In, in looking back at this issue, that this was an entire school, that Magneto had generations of mutants, that he had what were probably analogs to the new mutants here. And they're gone. That's just wiped out. That status quo is broken. And it remains broken when we get to X-Men Chronicles number two, Shattered Dreams. This is written again by Howard Mackey, penciled by Ian Churchill, inked by Scott Hanna, Al Vey, Bob Vicek, and Steve Monkhuis, and colored by Matt Webb and Digital, Digital Chameleon. As we always say, with that many inkers, it's gotta be good. Actually, it is pretty good. It is. Uh, this is this is where the soap opera gets lathery. Do we say that? Is that an idiom? Can it be an idiom? I want it to be an idiom. I think that is absolutely an idiom, or at least it is in Earth 295, and since that's where we're spending the next many, many episodes of the podcast, it works. So Chronicles 2 takes place some years later, and like number one, it's focused on major points of backstory that led us up to X-Men Alpha. In this case, significant departures from the team and some overlapping romance drama. I love romance drama. Then you're in luck, because boy howdy do we get a lot of it here. First of all, though, as we open, the team lineup has shifted. Now we have Gambit and Sabretooth both on the team, and Rogue has risen to Magneto's second-in-command. I dig that we never find out exactly how Sabretooth got onto the team. I mean, okay, there's like a four-page story many years later that sort of explains it, but it it works. I mean, again, it just implies more than it shows. But what I'm really curious about, if Weapon X and Sabretooth have both been on the X-Men for some period of time, how did the team get anything done? Weren't they having to, like, pull them back from tearing each other apart about every four seconds? There is so much in that hideout that is scent marked now. Oh, God. They're just peeing everywhere. They're, they're drinking so much water to continue to hydrate. They have, like, mutant hydration factors in addition to their healing factors. Okay, that was upsetting. Uh, let's go back to talking about the issue. Not only has the team lineup shifted, but their costumes have as well. As in the transition from X-Men number one to giant size X-Men number one, we're now seeing a group with much more ragtag and individual looks. Also, more face tattoos, which not only do they look fucking great, like we see Jean and Logan and Storm all with just badass jagged marks on their faces, but if you look at it a certain way, it's never confirmed confirmed, that means that all of those characters have been prisoners in the breeding pens or the slave pens or whatever of Apocalypse and have gotten out. Or possibly are using them as elaborate camouflage of some sort. Or think they look cool. Well, we do know that Logan and Jean did make it into and out of the slave pens. That's right. Because here we get 
some backstory. Uh, Logan and Jean are in the process of quitting the team when this issue opens. Um, at, because at some point, Jean was captured by Apocalypse's forces, and Magneto made the difficult call to leave her, to not go back for her. Weapon X went back, got her out, and lost a hand in the process. And now they are quitting the team because Logan cannot get past the fact that Magneto just left her, and Jean is just kind of going along with him. I know another reason they're quitting the team. Why? Because if this is the analog to Giant Size X-Men number one, Sunfire hasn't showed up yet. Somebody needs to quit. Sunfire is going to show up eventually. Not in this issue, but he is, and he is really, really cool. God, his Age of Apocalypse design is so sharp. It really is. And Logan is still really awful. He, his attitude towards Jean, his general demeanor around her and around their relationship is so possessive and so creepy and he's he's like a man made out of red flags and it's very uncomfortable but probably not as uncomfortable as jean's jacket i i like jean's jacket i mean i wouldn't want to wear it to be fair but it looks cool it looks cool but it looks like there's so much cloth involved that i don't know how she can raise and lower her arms telekinesis that would only go so far she's really good at it in this universe but Weapon X and Jean are off to have their own adventures in their own book. And that brings us to Unhappy Couple number two. That's Gambit and Rogue. And they're only kind of dubiously a couple because Gambit has clearly never actually told Rogue how he feels about her. Meanwhile, she's been quietly developing a huge crush on Magneto. I really love their dynamic here, though. I mean, yeah, there's that romantic tension stuff going on, certainly. But what there also is, is a clear excellent three-person friendship between the three of them like they're all super supportive of each other even in their very different roles on the team and knowing that magneto and gambit are going to have this big falling out and knowing that it probably has to do with magneto and rogue ending up together like it's it's a little painful to look at this because clearly it's a friendship that does work until it stops working yeah man if there is a distinguishing point between 616 and 295 Gambit, it's that Earth 295 Gambit is somehow even more of a disaster bisexual. Yeah, yeah, he is, and I love him for it. Yeah, like, when I was first reading this, again, in high school, like, I knew that Rogue and Gambit were a thing, but I very much read this as a Gambit who was pretty much in love with both Magneto and Rogue and really hurt that they ended up together without him. I mean, honestly, that makes a lot of sense for his character, and not just because I want everything to be polyamorous and queer. It, yeah, it, it really, really clicks here. Now, Gambit and Rogue are not the only ones thinking about Magneto. Holocaust, um, whom we met as Nemesis in Chronicles Number 1, hates Magneto for doing whatever he did, such that Holocaust now has to wear doofy power armor all the time. I'd like to jump in here and say once again, as I think we should whenever this character shows up, why? Why does he have that name? Any other name would be an improvement. I'm a little annoyed at Nemesis, too, though, although I know Dr. Nemesis wasn't a major X-Men character yet at this point. He's also definitely not that character, either. No. But, uh, anyway, Holocaust wants revenge, and he's gonna get revenge via Wolverine. Now, this is not your daddy's Wolverine. This is uh, some purple dude, and he can, cha he can charge up other beings with some kind of energy that might just be a whole lot of adrenaline, and he's super strong, and Dark Beast somehow optimized him so that all he wants is to kill for Apocalypse, and his codename is Wolverine for no particular reason. Okay, a number of things about this. I assumed he was maybe supposed to be cruel of the external, you know, cruel, who rules. I mean, he's a big, beefy purple guy with a top knot. I don't know. So I looked him up on the Marvel database, right, which is a great resource, uh, marvel.fandom.com. And I learned that, quote, he is a very skilled fighter, tracker, and terrorist. Huh. Guess he went to terrorist school. Uh, but yeah, his powers that you mentioned, Jay, where he can make people, like, extra strong and berserk before they burn out and die— that actually reminded me a lot of the powers of Infectia back from old X-Factor. Remember her? Oh yeah, I can kind of see that. And can you also kind of see this purple Wolverine guy wearing her little black dress? Because I sure can. 
Actually, yeah, that's weirdly easy to picture. I mean, her look in general is very Age of Apocalypse friendly. Kind of is. But yeah, as for him being called Wolverine, that's weird. Like, Logan being Wolverine, that makes sense. He's short, and he's hairy, and he's mean. And this guy is, like, mean, but not in a Wolverine-y way. And he's very tall, and as near as I can tell, he's not hairy at all, aside from his cool sideburns and top knot. Maybe he just, like, smells really bad. Okay, so what's a generally large, unpleasant mammal? Humanity. Nah. Anyway, Holocaust has a plan for using this purple wolverine guy. Right. So, he has already killed one of Magneto's kids, and he's going to have Wolverine kill Magneto's other kid. And this is a good plan, because remember, Earth-295 Magneto actually gives a fuck about Quicksilver. But... Wolverine, upon spying on the group, quickly realizes that, no, even though he does have a good relationship with his son, the people Magneto actually cares about the most are Rogue and Gambit. And so Wolverine recruits a bunch of street punks after killing some of them to accompany him and get powered up so he can fight the X-Men. And I really appreciate that even early Bronze Age, Age of Apocalypse, has street punks with amazing mohawks. I feel like the worse the civilization you have, the better the hair you have. They're very Dark Knight Returns. They are, yeah. Also, when they briefly scuffle with the X-Men, one of them throws a non-metallic blade at Magneto, which is very handy and, like, kind of way too coincidental. So I think what's going on that this is that this was Scrimshaw. This punk was a Scrimshander. Like, we shouldn't assume that all people are as defined by their day job. Like, they have hobbies, right? I mean, yeah, but we didn't see any kind of elaborate engraving of, uh, on it depicting whaling journeys or anything else. I think that's just because, you know, the artists were too busy switching anchors every 10 seconds to fill in those details. I think you may be over-optimistic on the scrimshaw front. But after this fight, and after after having a rough day, I want to talk about whom Rogue goes to for reassurance. Because it is not someone I expected. I really did not see this coming. It's Quicksilver. Yeah, normally you only go to Quicksilver if you want to get insulted and made to feel really bad. No, but so Pietro is interesting in the Age of Apocalypse. He is weirdly emotionally well-adjusted and amicable. Like, he actually talks about his feelings, and he's specifically very close to Rogue. And so when Rogue goes to meet up with him and asks him what he's up to... Speed reading, mostly. Wanda used to say it was one of my more annoying habits. You still miss her, don't you, Pietro? Always. My sister was the best friend I ever had. I constantly think about how differently things would have turned out if she was still alive. She was an incredibly caring person with an ability to instantly make anyone feel loved. But you know that, Rogue. Even though you didn't know her f for very long, you know. And after all these years, I can't tell you how grateful I am that you were there with her at the end. I know it was painful for you, watching her die at the hands of Nemesis. But she deserved to have someone there with her. Pietro? What do you think Wanda would have thought about my being your father's second-in-command? What do you think? I mean, you are his son and all. What do I think? We've gone over this already, Rogue. You're worrying for nothing. As a matter of fact, I'm relieved at being temporarily free of the burden of responsibility. I also think that soon the team's going to have to expand, and then we'll need more than one team leader. What I'm saying is that I, and I think Wanda would as well, approve of all you're doing for our father. Thank you, Pietro. Now, Pietro is also half of one of the few really solid drama-free relationships with, surprisingly enough, Storm. I like his take on why their relationship works. She doesn't tell me how to run, and I don't tell her how to control the weather. It's made for a pretty happy relationship so far. Yeah, yeah, okay. But speaking of unhealthy pseudo-relationships, Gambit blurts out to Rogue that, hey, he's ready for a commitment. This sets off a Rube Goldberg machine of feelings. As Rogue runs off to confess her feelings to Magneto, Magneto, it turns out, has finally, using their combined magnetic pow powers, figured out a way for them to touch using magnetism. And as we read this, I don't know, I had very complex and angry feelings about this because Gambit, before he talked to Rogue, had talked to his best bud, Magneto. He was there for relationship advice and, well, I don't know, let's just go through this dialogue and talk about it. 
I have these feelings for her, and I've been trying to let her know, but she won't give me a chance. The way I figure it's that she's concerned about her powers. Now you and me have talked about the possibility of getting around them, and I was wondering if maybe you could talk to her for me. To which Magneto responds, Remy, I don't know if this would be a good time for me to... There are things. I... And then they're interrupted by Rogue. So it seems, upon initial reading, or at least it seemed to me, that Magneto had been developing this magnetic stuff so that Gambit and Rogue could touch. But rereading it, and as you pointed out when we were talking about this earlier, Jay, this could very well just be Gambit assuming that was the case. Gambit reading everything into this situation, when in fact, he didn't even know if Rogue was into him. Yeah, I mean, I think... So one of the things that I think is really important about Magneto and Rogue's relationship working and about Magneto not being a massive, massive heel at the beginning of it is that Rogue is the catalyst at every stage. She is the one who first approaches him about her feelings. She's the one who initiates the conversation and also the relationship. Gambit, we know, has never told her how he feels until he jumped up and was like, Hey, Rogue, I'm ready to make a commitment. Yeah, he kind of went from zero to 60 there. Right? And and Magneto's been working on this thing, but I, I'd like to think Magneto is a decent enough person that he sees what he's doing as something he's doing for Rogue to then use with whomever Rogue wants to use it with, not for Rogue and Gambit. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Gambit, like, I feel for the dude. Like, it's gotta really hurt to be rejected when the pair of people you want to be in a thruple with hook up with each other and pay no attention to you. But, like, dude, you could have handled this way better. Yeah, it sucks to be rejected. And you know what lowers the odds of rejection? Actually telling anyone involved what you want and how you feel before it's too late and you're sitting in a tree spying on them as they make brief, tenuous contact between their hands and then you jump down and yell at the woman you want to have be your girlfriend because she looks all starry-eyed. Well, thankfully, they are saved by the Wolverine because Purple Wolverine and his mohawked punks attack. However, this is also what hammers the final nail into the coffin of any chance Rogue and Gambit have in a relationship, because given a split-second choice, Rogue rescues Magneto. It kind of reminds me of that one issue of Adjectiveless we just covered, the flashback with Sabretooth and Gambit, where Sabretooth forces Gambit to choose between saving his brother and saving his girlfriend, and he saves his brother. Yeah, and what's wild here, too, is that Gambit assumes that romance and feelings are the source of this, not the fact that Magneto is the leader of the entire fucking revolution. Like, in the scheme of things, if you have to save one of them, you save Magneto, tactically. That being said, I'm pretty sure Rogue was at least partially doing it because of romance and feelings. Oh yeah, for sure, but the point is, there are a lot of reasons to rescue Magneto. Now, Gambit responds to this by blowing up Wolverine's belt by sticking a giant boulder behind it, and then goes and and sulks off. This part always bothered me as a child, because the belt you're talking about is basically a metal plate riveted to Wolverine's belly, and Gambit somehow just, like, slips a rock underneath it? That, that doesn't work! There are rivets! Also, why are there rivets? So, I had to read back through it a couple times to realize that Gambit put the rock there, because it's so fucking big, first of all. It doesn't make any sense. I assumed it was just there. It was like a component of the belt buckle. It's very unclear. Some of these character designs, I mean, they look cool, but it's best not to think too much about them. So that's X-Men Chronicles number one and number two. Those are our big dips into the backstory of the Age of Apocalypse. And for me, that brings up one big question that I feel like we should spend a few minutes talking about, which is, should this stuff be shown, or should it all just be left to imagination and implication? So, I think that Chronicles actually hits that balance very, very well. We see their first mission, but other than that, we see much more of the aftermath of big events than of big events themselves. And... First of all, sometimes that aftermath is more interesting and more narratively relevant than the climax. But second, and I think more relevantly, a big part of what makes Age of Apocalypse work for me is that it feels like small pieces of a larger fully formed whole, and the more gets that gets filled in, the less complete it actually feels. 
So having these snippets, having these snapshots and bits around the edges works beautifully. But when you actually go back and sort of slavishly have to add the, you know, and this is the secret origin of Sabretooth's left boot as distinct from his right boot, um, which he wears at one point when he's talking to Blink, but then not in a later scene. I'm making this up. This isn't actually a thing. I, I knew you would be thinking about boots the entire episode. We talked about them at the beginning, and now it's in the back of both of our heads. Bringing it full circle. Um, like, the more of that you fill in, the less well it works. And I, my, my, my analog, which isn't a direct one, but is one of my favorite short stories, and so I'll, I'll go back to it, is the Borges stories, Plan Ukbar Orbis Tertius, which is about a very similar concept played in a very different way, but I think also drives home that evocation and bits and pieces and showing something that clearly fits into something larger without showing something larger can often be more revealing than actually showing the whole. Yeah, and this being a comic book, there are multiple avenues through which to do that. So in the X-Men Chronicles issues, and I think elsewhere as well, we get a bunch of pinup art. And one of those is Nemesis being transformed into Holocaust by Dark Beast. Another is Magneto rescuing Exodus. These are things that we hear referenced. These are things that we see like a single panel of, but we never get the full story. We're left to fill that in with our imaginations. And yeah, I think for X-Men Chronicles, for the two stories that are chosen, you know, the first mission and the death of Wanda, big deal, and gambit leaving the team to go as it turns out form his own team and his own book like this works very well because it jumps into a lot of nostalgia with all the references in chronicles number one and honestly a lot of the soap opera in number two that we just don't have time for in the main present day age of apocalypse stories like these are very well chosen and i'm hot and cold on howard Mackey. sometimes i like his stuff sometimes i don't but i think that whether or not you like the writing here the plotting is freaking solid Agreed. One thing we never really see that's a big deal, we talked about it earlier, is Logan liberating Gene from the breeding pens and losing his hand, as it turns out, to Cyclops, who's working for Sinister, and Cyclops losing his eye to Logan. And that I really dig. I think that's a very good choice to not show, because you totally could. It would be a crowd pleaser of a fight, but leaving it implied works so well for all the characters. Well, that's the thing. It's a crowd pleaser of a fight, but it's the kind of fight that's never going to look as cool as what everyone imagines. Exactly, yeah. So, well done, X-Men Chronicles. And we'll be doing some more backstory next episode, and I'd love to at least briefly touch on this topic again with those stories. In the meantime, though, you've got questions. Midnight Library asks on Tumblr, We've had Age of Apocalypse and Age of X-Men, but what character would you most want to see an Age of series about? Age of Forget-Me-Not. It would be very confusing and hard to write, and only Cy Spurrier could probably do it. Oh, I like that. <laughs> it was a joke, but yeah, now that I think about it, that would be fun and weird. Uh, more seriously, if it was handled well, and I will say again, if it was handled well, I would love to see an Age of Haven. You know, the X-Factor villain who was trying to, like, trigger a big disaster so there could be a utopia in the future. Like, her plans were global enough, and her philosophy was complex and interesting enough that I feel like it could make for a really fascinating world. That said, given that Haven's beliefs are partially based on actual real-life religions, like, you'd really have to be careful to do that right. Age of Frost. Like a world ruled over by Emma Frost? Or how would that work? Or a world created by Emma Frost. Or a world created by some combination of Emma Frost and Jean Grey. Oh, that would be interesting. And since it would be so inherently telepathic, I feel like you could have it be really surreal in fascinating ways. You could, but you'd also get some really interesting references back to and explorations of some of those core values. Now, going in a very different and probably much, much more fun direction... I'd like to think that somewhere out there, there's an Age of Sunspot that's pretty damn delightful. Oh, man. You know, honestly, I kind of feel like the current space plot line in New Mutants is sort of Age of Sunspot. Yeah, but with more Magnum P.I. Legit. Oh, actually, that's it. That's the only significant difference, because I talked to Al about this years and years ago, to Al Ewing, um, actually on, on one of the convention sofa specials, and he he confirmed that the only reason Bobby doesn't have a Magnum P.I. mustache is that he can't grow one. So I think the one significant difference in Age of Sunspot is that he can grow a mustache. I would love for Bobby DaCosta to have a mustache. 
I want to see an age of magic, an age of Ilyana Rasputin. I feel like this could be an alternate history where she took over Limbo after she was trapped there for a while, but she brought it to Earth in this sort of misguided, attempted, utopian version of Inferno. Think about Ilyana Rasputin with all of her trauma and all of her noble intentions and all of her power being in charge of the way the world worked. How fascinating would that be? Speaking of characters who it's really fun to see thrust into positions of responsibility they don't want, Age of Choir. Oh, God. Oh, that would be that would be painful, but also really well, fun. Yes and no, it wouldn't be fun. It would be interesting because you've got a character whose biggest motivation for ages and ages and ages has been dodging responsibility and especially dodging epic world you know, standing responsibility. He keeps having it thrust upon him and, and you know, generally told, well, you're going to be the Phoenix Force. You're going to have to deal with all of this stuff. Go briefly become the god of the Shi'ar. I would be fascinated to see how he would and wouldn't break under the weight of attempting to create a world. Okay, okay. I feel like that's like a one-shot or four-issue limited series. I feel like past that it would uh, maybe outlive its functional story point. But yeah, yeah, you've convinced me. Oh, yeah, it definitely has him walking off at the end and leaving it to someone else. Meanwhile, Anti-Villain asks on Tumblr, We know Jay and Miles exist in X-Men 92 canon. Yes, we do. If we stretch that to assume that although never shown, there are versions of the two of you in 90s X-Men, what would your Age of Apocalypse AU selves be like? Now, entirely discounting the super rad Age of Apocalypse cover art that we've got, we're rocking right now um, by, by Peter Wynn, I feel pretty confident saying that our Age of Apocalypse counterparts would probably be dead. I mean, odds are, to be honest. Yeah. That said, I thought about this for kind of a while, and I feel like you have two main Age of Apocalypse options if you're going to show up in Age of Apocalypse and not just be dead. You can either be edgier versions of your existing selves in slightly altered and more dangerous roles, or you could be working for the bad guys. Now, in X-Men 92... Jay, you and I were Cassandra Nova's henchmen. We were henchmen of the villain. So let's just skip that. We've already checked that box off. So I vote that in Earth-295, in the Age of Apocalypse, we are pirate radio operators helping coordinate mutant resistance and trying to keep morale up uh, against Apocalypse's forces from our secret hideout on Octopusheim. I'm so into this. Right? Unfortunately, about eight hours or so into this, probably Apocalypse Infinites would find us and, and, and kill us. But until then, it would be rad as hell, and I feel like we would be uniquely suited for it. Oh man, I like this timeline, and I'm excited to be a part of it, even the horrible death. Hooray! And speaking of hooray... Our listeners, we're a fully listener-supported podcast, and some levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts, and even in, in Earth-295, we have the angry Clermontian narrator. What twisted trail of events led you to this precipice, Eric Owens? What butterfly flapped its delicate wings in one continent spurring our hurricane of Rube-Goldbergian causality that left you at the cruel mercy of Tomas? The answer, of course, is none. It was your own bad choices that led you here, just like it always is. And he may be unlucky in love, but he gets the mic anyway, and uh, as we turn over the floor to sexy gambit gambit been done dirty by an arm he taught was his frere magneto was supposed to help gambit safely touch rogue and instead mag cheat o used that miracle of magnetism to get down with rogue himself we could have been to power thruple of westchester but gambit gambit be left out into cold Gambit know that Adrian Allen be a loyal, sexy wingman, though. Adrian gonna help Gambit and Gambit's new lady friend with the problem keeping them apart. Cause Adrian's locksmithing skills gonna come in real handy with that lady's comically enormous and cartoonish chastity belt. How'd she even get that ting? And Jay Husak be way too attractive and ethical to ever betray Gambit. We sexy friends till the end. Which is a good thing, cause... Gambit's new new lady friend have a problem too. 
Thankfully, Dr. Husak's knowledge of theoretical physics be just what Gambit's new new relationship needs to get Gambit and his new new lady into the same plane of existence so they can get nasty, Cajun style. Thanks, Jay Husak. And with that, Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, and these days specifically the Age of Apocalypse, is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported across all universes. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, a Summers family reunion somehow manages to go even worse than usual. As Corsair makes a pit stop in the Age of Apocalypse.